are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and I hope that your week is off to a great start. I'm launching this week's podcast on a Wednesday because I honestly could not wait until next Monday to get the conversation and the word out about today's guest, who is someone in a very different space for the podcast, and it's honestly so exciting to get to hear new, fresh, and very relevant points of view on the show. Kat Wang is the head of product at Jasco Games. In case you haven't heard of Jasco Games, and that probably makes sense if you're not in the card consumer good or CCG industry, Jasco is behind the card game for one of the most loved anime series in the world, My Hero Academia. Thousands of players gather to play and trade My Hero Academia cards daily. There are tournaments, and Jasco has a 25,000-plus Discord server community where players interact and make connections. Kat is responsible for both physical and digital product, which is both a very difficult scope, but also allows her to think about innovation end-to-end versus for a specific touchpoint or in a vacuum. She comes from a really impressive background in both the startup world and the consulting space from her time at Bain & Company, and I hope that you get a ton of takeaways from today's conversation with Kat. And please do check out Jasco Games as they are continuously hiring the brightest next innovation talent to move the needle in their space. Hi, Kat. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited um, to be talking to you today. Me too. And I have to say, we have had some pretty geeky people on this podcast. I mean, we've had the head of innovation at Netflix's animation studio. We've had people who are like heads of R&D for Motorola. But you are our first self-proclaimed geek, but also (laughs) our first innovator who's heading up both physical and digital product. And also you're doing that at the company behind my Hero Academia collectible card game, which is super cool. Before we dive into your background and all the things, a quick snippet about Jasco Games and My Hero Academia is that it is the most popular manga and most requested TV show in the United States in the last two years. How the heck do you go from big consulting to food to SaaS and then to Jasco Games? That's a great question. <laughs> and I think it's a question that people tend to have when they look at my career path and resume. For me, it was really around following my nose for challenges. So when I first um, graduated from college, um, what I was really looking for was a place where I could learn how to work and be around people that I respected and admired and could learn from and to work on challenging problems. And that's how I ended up in consulting. I luckily was based out of the San Francisco office at Bain & Company. And being based out of San Francisco meant that I worked on a lot of technology cases. And Mm. in my two and a half years there, what I realized is that I'd spent more than 50% of my time there working on product strategy and product transformation cases. And those also happened to be the things that I enjoyed the most. Given that introduction to product, I found myself gravitating towards the product manager role. 
there was also a question that I needed to answer for myself, which is if I wanted to work at a larger company um, where there was more support, where the processes were more streamlined, or if I wanted to work at a small company where half of the job is figuring out how to work um, Mm -hmm. and how to do it in a very resource-constrained setting. And the approach that I generally take is you never know until you try. So I decided to go from Bain, which was a very large consulting firm, to a 20-person startup based out of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a really great way to answer the question for myself of, do I want to work at a large company or do I want to work at a smaller company? And do I like working on product more from a consulting and strategy perspective or in-house as a product manager? Um, So from there, um, I worked in product in the end of life and death care industry. Um, And then I also touched food and did some consulting work briefly for a home furnishing startup. Um, Mm. And then from there, I actually went to a CRM startup um, called Affinity. That's where I would say I entered the more hardcore SaaS space, um, where I did work with a fairly large team of engineers Um, building out uh, both the data processing capabilities and our actual data and software products. And then from there, I took a hard turn and ended up at Jasco. As I listen to your story, there are so many different elements that I hear. One about, it's almost like, I don't know if you have a chip on your shoulder about it or it's my chip on my shoulder that I'm projecting onto you. But this idea when somebody looks at your resume and they're like, why can't you tell the thread, right? Like having that, you know, zigzaggy resume, you know, for you, whether you want to leave this big company and try all these other things was this big consideration, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. But so many people, I think, are so scared, whether it's men or women, are so scared after having the cushion, the comfort of being at a company so large that they're really afraid to make the change. So I guess my two questions were, you know, how were you fearless about deviating from the big consulting path, but also how are you fearless in all the turns after that and really didn't let the fear of somebody not understanding your resume kind of hold you back? That's a great question. I think the common thread is that I have done product work consistently mm-hmm, across mm-hmm. all of my roles, just in different industries. So what happens there is that you learn the fundamentals of product thinking um, and the product skill set, and you just take it and apply it in a different settings, which is something that has allowed me to feel comfortable working at all these different companies, thinking about all these different products, but still feel good about developing a skill set that will be useful, that I can be better and better at going forward. In terms of how I found the courage or the comfort to do this, I'm actually not naturally a courageous person. <laughs> I would say mm. that I'm fairly risk adverse. There's two things. The first is I've always wanted to grow. And I think the best way to grow is to do the thing that you're uncomfortable with. So when I see a challenge that looks really hard and a situation that I may or may not be able to do with the person that I am today, I'm very attracted to that. And that's part of why I was attracted to Jasco Games. When the opportunity came up to work at a company that had some overlap in terms of software product, but also something brand new, so hardware product or physical product 
and uh, working in gaming, it was something that was very attractive to me because I didn't quite know if I would be able to fill that role without a decent amount of growth. The second thing is that the more that you do hard things for myself personally, the more confidence I have in my ability to tackle hard problems in the future. So over time, as I've worked on problems that going in feel very hard, and then I walk out feeling pretty good about the results that I drove and the product manager that I became through the process, you get increasing confidence that you'll be able to face the next big challenge. Completely. And that's actually one of the reasons that I really feel confident in, in saying I'll be a product manager the rest of my life because I felt like it's it's a career that's so multifaceted and opened so many doors um, that I completely agree with with that logic. You talked about being interested in hard problems. I, I believe you when you say that. So tell me more about the hard problems you were excited to solve for at JASCO. What was sort of like the impact you were looking to have? What really got you excited about the hard problems there? Um, for me, it's a combination of the hard problems and the huge opportunity. Um, I think mm-hmm. one without the other is um, not quite as exciting. I can speak briefly on the opportunity and then I can jump into sort of some of the problems that we're going to need to work through in the next couple of years. On the opportunity side, um, when I was first introduced to JASCO, there were a few things that really stood out to me. So going back to sort of product fundamentals, what you want to see is a product that has good product market fit. And that's what I saw. When you go to tournaments for JASCO, you see about a 50-50 split between players that have played for a long time and brand new players. When you talk to the players who've been playing for a while, a lot of them have been playing for five or 10 years which if you sort of are familiar with the world of games in digital and mobile games, the ability to retain someone for a month is considered already pretty good retention. So the fact that you see people coming and engaging with this product year after year after year for five to 10 years tells me that there's something truly special there in terms of product market fit. The second thing that it says is about half of the people that were at the tournaments were brand new. So not only is this game able to retain, we also do see the ability to attract new players. Right. As a product manager, when you see a game that, or you see a product that can attract new users and retain them, that's like very exciting to me. Very. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, where are the problems? This is (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was sort of like the base that I was like, okay, this is definitely something that feels like it has a really solid foundation and has legs to work with. Did you know why at the time? Like when you heard those statistics, when you were able to see it for yourself, was it like, I get it? Or were you like, this is a unicorn? If I'm being completely honest, I don't think I quite understood it at that time. I just saw it and I was like, well, there has to be something here. I don't know what it is, but there's something and there's challenges that I think I know how to solve or I will be able to figure out. So between the two, Mm -hmm. that felt very attractive. On the challenges side, It's classic small company problems. When you have a smaller company, you're both trying to build the thing while figuring out how to build the thing, while figuring out the direction that you want to build the thing in. As companies get bigger, the processes, so how to build the thing, typically becomes more stable. The vision has also been around longer, so that's also more stable. So there's less sort of 
variables that you have to account for day to day. Um, a very tactical example of the speed at which we've had to figure out how to solve problems just by looking at the sheer headcount. So JASCO Games last year was four people, and right now it's about 30. So in less than a year... Tremendous. Right, exactly. In less than a year, it's almost 10x. And when you are four people, then you add a fifth person, everyone's job description changes a little bit, right? So everyone, the four original people, the way that they do things, what they owned, how decisions were made, um, all shifts a little bit to accommodate that fifth person. So we've had to go through that, I want to say on almost a bi-weekly basis in the process of growing from four to 30. So while you are trying to build the product and figure out the strategy, and for me, learn the industry, you are also trying to build a company where every two weeks, everyone's job description and the ways that people work together by definition shift a little bit because of how much hiring you're doing. And so how do you as a leader kind of handle that? You walk in, you're probably ruffling some feathers because you're kind of a new (laughs) person. People's roles are changing. People are getting layered. Like whatever all the things that happen when you're growing this fast, how did you go about figuring out whether it's your 30, 60, 90 plan, whether it's like how you culturally establish yourself? What was your thinking with that? It was definitely a challenge, which is um, how do you go into an organization where you are the new person and the organization functioned fine before you were there? In some ways, product is one of those uh, functions that feels um, both specialized and unspecialized. We're not like designers where a company can't function with a designer. Companies can technically function without product or product managers. So when you go in, there's a question of, What is the value of product as a function and a discipline? For sure. I think it comes down to the people. And the first thing that I took time to do was just to get to know um, everyone at the company and spend a lot of time with the other function heads to get an understanding of what they viewed was the ownership of product and how they would like to get value out of working with a product function. And Product is does different things at different companies. So there was definitely a little bit of definitional alignment that needed to happen. But I think by spending quite a bit of time just getting to know how the company functions before product and what the other functions would like to see made it easier to have those discussions around um, what is the best way for product to plug into an existing process? What are the things that we could change about the process to make it more efficient, more mature? And then how do we set up product to be successful as a function? Um, Because product at the end of the day is never going to be successful without the buy-in of all the other functions. Mm -hmm. So it's something that I definitely still keep an eye out for. And it's not going to be an ending process. My guess is that for the next year, um, or at least for the next couple of years, it's going to be a continued dialogue around what is the best way for product to work with other functions and how does product add value to what the other functions are already doing. For sure. And it, you, you've talked about like flying or swimming as you learn how to walk. And I think with product and the, the typical job description of that, you're already doing that. And now you're layering in the stage of the company that you're at. So I imagine you have your hands full. 
but thinking about where you've been and how far you've come, you've, you know, probably learned the game at this point, you know, the, the series, hopefully really well, you're going to the tournaments, doing your thing. Let's talk about how you begin to innovate and how you think about innovation, especially layering on some of those things that you've spoken about, but also, you know, you are in an industry that seems so removed otherwise from your previous experiences, even though I'm sure there are lots of takeaways that you can pull into. That's a great question. So I think one of the first things that I focused on when getting at the company was not around pushing innovation, but around fundamentals. So how do we make sure that the functions are working together? How do we make sure that the core basic things that every other CCG in the space does, we also do if it makes sense for us to. So while I'm not a fan of copying competitors, it is helpful to be competitor aware When you're a small startup, you're competing against giants who have more time, more resources, more people, more data than you. So you need to be very careful around where you choose to differentiate. And part of that is figuring out where to not differentiate, right? There are certain Mm -hmm. instances in which you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You want to take the wheel that someone else has created, figure out why it works the way it does, and then make it work for your product, your company, or your user base. And then you need to go and say, what are the areas where strategically we think we might have an advantage as a startup and really put your resources there? So very tactically for us, when we were looking at things like rarities or how to incentivize and support in-store play, those are things that had industry precedent In terms of innovation, we decided to double down on our digital platform, Mm. which brings a couple of advantages. The first is one natural stumbling block in the tabletop gaming space is the fact that it's a physical product. So there is lack of data and there's lack of visibility into what your players are doing. When you add any kind of software touch point, it's a chance to get more visibility into a space that's pretty opaque. So the physical product that we sell is the cards, and the digital product that we sell is the matchmaking software that connects card gamers to other card gamers and card gamers to stores and tournaments where they can play. Wow, huge. The analogy that I like to use or the way that I actually conceptually think about it is without the spaces and the community to play with, we are selling the equivalent of tennis balls and tennis rackets without players and without courts, right? Mm -hmm. So the physical part of the product, the cards are the tennis balls and the tennis rackets, whereas the software and the incentive programs and the community support programs, the matchmaking programs, and the peer-to-peer teaching programs are the equivalent of finding other tennis players and finding tennis courts. Um, When you step back, at the end of the day, no one is buying tennis balls because they want tennis balls. They're buying tennis balls for the fun of being able to play the game and for the ability to meet other people, which is what we're selling. We're selling an experience of fun, and we're selling an experience of being able to find a community. Fundamentally, that taps into jobs to be done, right? Like, exactly. why would people 
trade collectible cards or, or play, right? Why do people play tennis? It's yes, there's different elements and different flavors that satisfy different kinds of consumers, but ultimately you're solving for that job to be done, which is, I imagine, like you said, the experience, the social element, the creativity, the competitive nature, um, all of which is really, really exciting. In innovation, one of the biggest things we talk about is being close to your customer, human-centered design. I imagine, and this is just a big assumption, that the majority of the people who are playing the games and are into the collectible card game industry and manga and Discord communities, they're probably males. And so I wonder how you think about really connecting to your customer, ensuring that you're close to your customer and not kind of removed and building something that's not going to resonate with them. That's um, a great point. There's actually several sort of advantages and disadvantages that we have as a company and as a product organization. As a company, we are very lucky to have people who are very deep in the card game space. So a lot of our game designers have been playing this card game for as long as it's been out. We actually have some of the previous world champions on the card design team. Wow. Um, So that does really help in terms of making sure that we are designing a product that works for a certain subset of our user base, which is the very highly engaged, long-retained competitive players. The flip side is you have people like me who don't have a lot of experience in the card game space and don't actually look like your typical person who might engage in collectible card games. I would argue that that's in some ways an advantage. I remember my first product mentor actually told me that the worst product manager is the product manager who thinks that they're the ideal customer (laughs) because then they won't go do their homework. For sure. Just because I or any product manager doesn't look like their typical customer, it doesn't mean that we can't listen and have empathy for what they're trying to do and then what they would like to get. And at the end of the day, what they're really buying when they purchase our product. Very tactically, what I do do is I actually go to our local game store once or twice a week, every week, um, Mm -hmm. just to play the game, spend time with the community, talk to players and stay connected. Even if I don't look like the profile of our typical buyer, I am able to, as much as possible, understand what their perspective is and what their jobs and needs are. It's really that you're there to listen and immerse and learn from them. And I think there's a lot that you can take away from that. And one of the things that's really exciting to me to hear as somebody who works at a very big company is that you kind of can pave the way that way for yourself and I imagine your team. So I'd just be curious to know as whether it's thinking about innovation or getting closer to the customer, as a leader at this company, somebody who's heading up physical and digital product, how do you push your team and the people you work with to think about innovation and customer-centric design? Someone that I really respect actually once told me when you get to a position of being a function lead, 99% of the long-term impact that you will make is actually through your team, not through the IC Mm -hmm. work that you do. So the goals and ways of working um, and the amount of care that you put into developing the team is what has real long-term dividends versus trying to rush for short-term gains or Mm short-term output. So there's sort of two categories of things that I think about. The first category is how do you up-level the way that the product team works 
overall. And the second category is how do you make sure the product team is really focused on the user needs versus mm-hmm. designing in a vacuum? As a startup, we don't have a ton of processes, but we have been trying to implement cross-function and cross-team knowledge sharing. So when the product team runs a survey, what we'll do is we'll share that knowledge that we get from the survey with all the other teams and try to discuss what that new data tells us about our buyer base. And what it does is it creates a shared company understanding over time of who our buyers are, what the buyer behavior is, what has worked and what hasn't worked. And as a company, when you start to have a shared understanding of who you're selling to and what their needs are, over time, the decisions that you make will start to converge because you're working off of the same framework and the same data. In terms of how the product team stays close with the customers, it's really about spending time with the customers Mm -hmm. where they are. Luckily for us, our customers are in local game stores, so we know where to find them. And the product is a game, so it's very fun to spend time using the product. I would say that all of our product managers play the game pretty religiously. And one of our product managers actually was a competitive magic player on the pro scene. Um, Mm. So we do like to have people who are very willing to go into stores and just spend a couple hours every single week playing the game and just listening to what all the customers want and listening pretty deeply past what customers say to what they're actually trying to get. So when a customer says something like, I would like XYZ cards, I think what you're actually trying to fish out is what is the goal of these cards or what is the emotion or experience that they're trying to get out of it? Is it self-worth? Is it skill expression? Is it the ability to show something cool off? Is it the ability for them to bring their friend into the game versus, right. versus the specifics of, hey, I want XYZ card? You also mentioned some of the bridging that you're doing between digital and physical product. And I know that you also have a robust Discord community. So how is engaging with the Discord community kind of giving you insights? And I know a lot of people are trying to grow their communities as a part of their digital products and their businesses. Any any tips or insights on that? We love our Discord community. We are very, very lucky that we have a very engaged community. And I think that that's really like an advantage that I didn't know I was walking into. There's, I think, two things that we do to try to keep the community pretty engaged. The first is that we're very interactive. So whenever there's new announcements or there's polls, we'll actually pull our online communities. We'll make all the announcements there. And when there's any complaints or feedback or questions, the customer success and community teams are a core part of making sure that the Discord community is a place where people feel heard. I believe our average SLA for Discord tickets is about 30 minutes to an hour, which is kind of... So fast. Which is kind of nuts. In terms of innovation and growing that community piece, there's things that we have been have not rolled yet out yet, but we've been thinking about doing, which is automatically enrolling new players into the Discord community or creating geo-targeted Discord communities. So you might have one for every major city, and then every time a new player pops up, you put them directly into the Discord community either through a QR code or through some kind of linking through our tournament software. 
What that does is that removes the friction points around the community as a product, um, because what players are buying at the end of the day is the experience of having fun and meeting people and being able to play this game and have this experience with people that they might enjoy spending time with. When you go into a store and then you play at a local tournament, at the end of the game, there is this awkward moment where the player says, okay, well, I enjoyed playing with this person. Do I ask for their phone number now so I can text them? Like, do I ask for their email or do I just show up next week and hope we bump into each other? Right. So there's things that we can do from a digital tooling perspective that could remove those friction points and make it easier for people to experience the community part of the product. So we could put everyone in the same discord. We could have an opt-in emailing list. Um, These are all things that we haven't rolled out, but we are definitely exploring as ways to both encourage the community aspect and also remove any friction points when it comes to having people engage with their local and online communities. I love how you think about it. So many people really do say physical world, comma, digital world. And I think this is a really great example of tapping into all of those customer touch points. So really, really exciting to hear. Before we do wrap it up, I did want to ask you one more quick innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? One month from now, if I'm being honest, I will be probably doing a lot of what I'm doing right now. (laughs) Fair, fair. What I've learned is execution and change is hard, right? Um, And especially when you're at a company that is growing and you're figuring out ways to work. So I will probably still be doing a lot of what I'm doing now, which is building the product team, making sure that the teams are all aligned to the vision that everyone has a shared understanding both in product and across the company on the types of levers that drive our key KPIs on implementing data tracking and on helping the teams develop a deeper understanding of our different user types. And at the same time, also making sure that we hit a certain release cadence. So the interesting thing about um, the CCG space that's different from the software space is that you are sort of expected to release once every three to four months. And releasing every three to four months is actually critical to the experience and keeping players engaged. Just to um, give a little bit more color here... Our game is physical. So typically, the people that you play are people who live within a 5 to 15 mile radius. Um, And given that our game is still small, your local group might only be 5 to 10 people. So Mm -hmm. if you're playing the same 5 to 10 folks with the exact same cars, exact same play styles for months and months and months, you'll typically get bored. And that's why these new releases are so critical Every time we release 200 cards, it completely shakes up the play experience and it just makes it interesting again because all the players rediscover what their play style is and rediscover what it's like to play each other. One year from now, I am hoping that we are number four in the marketplace. This might be a little bit aggressive, but to give some context, in the CCG space, we're actually number nine right now. Um, And the big three are Magic, Pokemon, and Mm Yu-Gi-Oh! You can sort of think of 
Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic as the skyscrapers, and where maybe the uh, multi-units that are a couple stories high. That's number four to number 10. So we're number nine right now. Um, And in order to get to number four, we need to nail the fundamentals. Mm Got to get the fundamentals right. Got to make sure that the game is well-balanced. We have to deliver on the right release timelines. We have to make sure that people have um, other people locally to play with. We have to make the game fun. We have to make the new player experience easy to onboard so we can continue to grow the community. And then once we get to number four, that's when the push for real differentiation and innovation needs to happen. Because there's this Mm -hmm. huge jump from number four, which is the tallest of the small apartment buildings to the skyscrapers. And some of the strategies that we're adopting now is let's really double down on understanding our customers and collecting data on their play experience, their purchasing experience, their retention, how they like to interact with stores, how they like to interact with communities, so that when we do reach number four and we need to make that jump, we're equipped with more data than any of the competitors from four to nine are in the space. Right. Really fascinating. And what about 10 years? <laughs> you thought I was going to let you get away with that one. <laughs> 10 years from now, I'm hoping that we will be one of the top three or top four. I think that that's where it really becomes about carving a product identity that is different and unique from the big three that are out there. Makes a lot of sense. And it's beautiful to see the way your mind works, Uh, just so thoughtful and also so creative at the same time. So thank you so much for joining me on the Win Win Podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.